American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life when the words all come down like blues on Tuesdays. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines. I'm Amy and that's Joe. And we are back to conclude the year 1950. Uh, we This is our, I guess, our 13th episode of 1950. Um, the 13th? Yeah, because remember the one we did, the Scottish timelines, it wasn't. Oh, that's month. right. Yes. So, yes. Aha. I thought you'd check so me there. 13 weeks. It only took 13 weeks to do one year now. We used to do one year an episode and now we. Yeah. Really dive into the monotony, everybody. Yeah. Thanks for diving in along with us. And I'm so excited about our guest today. Uh, we have, she is a big deal and she is sort of out of our league uh, when it comes to podcasts. So we're really excited and lucky to have her here. Um, we have this week Joni Deutsch, the on demand content and audience engagement manager and host of the Amplifier podcast at WFAE in Charlotte. Joni is, uh, she has led the first Charlotte Podcast Festival, uh, named one of the best podcast conferences by Buzzsprout. She helped produce <laughs> such podcasts as FAQ City, which is my favorite, Southbound, Inside mm-hmm. Politics, Work It, and the Apple Podcast Chart Topping Series. She says uh, she, in addition to being an NPR music contributor, Joni is also the creator and host of WFAE Charlotte Music Podcast amplifier uh named <laughs> that was named Could best podcast by charlotte magazine and she was honored for excellence in arts and music podcasting by the local edward r murrow awards and the webby awards please welcome the Joni deutsch uh, you all Joni deutsch you all hi thanks for having me here hi. i this is you know podcast land is a beautiful land of rich sound and crazy characters and y'all are gonna make this a a, a great little podcast episode i just know it oh thank you for being here Joni yes, deutsch i'm so you. lucky i have friends at work when i'm on the phone with Joni deutsch because we collaborate on a lot of projects uh, they always they're already you know, that's Joe. He's talking to Joni Deutsch. He knows her personally. <laughs> oh my God, is that Joni Deutsch? I'm like, yes, it's Joni Deutsch. And so now I have the the the, the uh, pleasure of having Joni Deutsch on the podcast. Joni, tell us about Amplifier. Oh gosh, uh, well, uh, it is a podcast that focuses on the Charlotte music scene and all of the different. Uh, sonic storytellers of different genres, different music communities, uh, all that are trying to get their stories out there through song. We've talked to Grammy-nominated artists. We've talked to um, record store owners. We've talked to individuals that are making music that typically isn't heard because we're not a New York City kind of music scene. We're not mm-hmm. an L.A. kind of music scene. But gosh, their songs here in Charlotte are a plus, absolutely. So I say for those that are interested in discovering a new artist before they become the next big thing, or simply just wanting to explore Charlotte music at a time where, at when we're recording this, it's still the pandemic, yes. uh, would highly recommend the Amplifier podcast to kind of uh, scratch that itch of seeing, hearing, enjoying music. That's just amazing. 
Yes, it really is. I love it too because I uh, I get obsessed with music and things and episodes and things. So I I listen one by one, and then after each episode, I download an album from the band that you highlight, and then I listen to other music in the car, and just kind of like that's where I review music. Like I yeah, like I have to have a certain volume level for me to listen to like really appreciate music. So mm-hmm. I download it. I listen to my Prius. I turn it up to. Tw- <laughs> 150 or 30 uh and i and i i listen to it loud um so i love it and i've i've listened i've heard artists i've never heard of and i live here in charlotte i wouldn't have heard them otherwise before the pandemic i didn't get to get out a whole lot because we're we're parents and we work a lot evenings and things so i get to be in touch with the charlotte music scene so if you're listening to this and you're not even in charlotte don't let that stop you because yes. every town has local music that's great yep. and that it, you'll be surprised how much you'll like these artists. Oh, um, and there's, I, I mean, look, yeah. we're on a history like podcast. So let me just say that uh, as someone who's not from Charlotte, I've only been here for about four years now. I'm originally from West Virginia. Uh, I moved West down Virginia? here wanting to do this podcast amplifier because I wanted to learn more about the community I was going to be a part of, not just hearing the Mm -hmm. new music, but hearing the stories behind it. History-wise, Charlotte is rich in music history. James Brown recorded Papa's Got a Brand New Bag here in Charlotte. We had, uh, you know, the the theme song of, the theme song, quote-unquote, of Deliverance, that (laughs) the dueling banjos, as they call it. The person who wrote and created that song, Arthur Guitar Boogie Smith, from here in Charlotte, huh. had a recording studio, had all kinds of artists over the years come here. Charlotte was the home of country music before Nashville. I mean, yeah. It, yeah. There's, again, the history is rich here, and that's part of it. It's like, yes, you get to hear a new song mm-hmm. from a band. Perhaps that song was in the new Netflix film, Night Stalker, and they yeah. the band is here in right. Charlotte. But you also get to hear, well, yeah, they were inspired by this other artist, this other person decades ago here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it all relates to something in the past it's cool to dive yeah. in and see the spider webs, this, the little, you know, little strings that form so you can see how they connect to one another. Yes, it really does. And that James Brown, we talked about this, I think, on our podcast. Um, that album, he was on the bus and that studio that was here in Charlotte, he happened to know about that studio. And he got the song, the, I think it was Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. It was in his head. And he was like, we got to stop immediately. I got to record this song. I got a song in my head. We got to stop wherever we are. I'm like, oh, we're in Charlotte. I, I know of one here. You know, they stopped in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. He recorded it. And that's, I think it's, but, was it Papa Got a Brand New it Bag? Is, wasn't it? it is. Yeah. yeah. And again, just I one of many singles that. that were recorded here. R.E.M. recorded their music here as well. I mean, again, oh. uh, you just have a long list. Fun fact, too, in recent Super Bowl years, as we're kind of approaching the new Super Bowl 2021, uh, yeah. the background vocals, J-Lo, when Jennifer Lopez did the Super Bowl in years past, she had her vocals recorded here in Charlotte, the background vocals and the like. So when you were listening to it at the Super Bowl, yes, some of it was live, but the majority of it was pre-produced, pre-produced here in Charlotte. So little things wow. you don't know, That's, you get to know with yeah. podcast. People don't know. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you. So you, if you, if you don't live here, I bet you want to move here now because Joni oh, yeah. Deutsch has sold it. That's and right. Joni Deutsch's voice can really sell some things. Like every time I listen to her, <laughs> I want to eat. I want to eat Bojangles and buy a Tyndall Subaru. Uh, <laughs> Support for this podcast <laughs> comes from listeners like you and Bojangles. <laughs> yeah. Bojangles. Mm-hmm. Freshly steeped iced tea and biscuits made from scratch. I know you say it. I listen to you all the time. The <laughs> FAQ City. I'm always like, 
Like, I've gone to Bojangles on more than one occasion because Joni Deutsch said it on a podcast I was listening to. And I was like, oh, I'm going to pull That's money to my ears, now. Joe. That's money to my ears. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. You did that, Joni Deutsch. So you tell Bojangles to get up to Annie because. Here, let me just pick up the least... phone and dial them right now, Mr. Bojangles. Yeah. <laughs> Bojangles has made at least $7.35 because of you. I like you wouldn't have pulled in anyway though. <laughs> I might not have, but when she, I, she, every time she talks about this fresh these biscuits made from scratch, I, Joni's got a way of telling that story. Okay, now we're <laughs> gonna, we're gonna jump right in. Joni's gonna join us here with our history endeavor going through December of 1950. She's got a story to tell us, but before we get to her story, we're gonna start with December 3rd, 1950, which was a Sunday. And I don't know if a lot of people know this, but conservative American radio broadcaster Paul Harvey began his six days a week radio commentary on this day. Paul Harvey News and Comment was the show. The program would continue for the next 58 years. And wow. It would be on 1,200 radio stations at the height of its popularity. I remember Paul Harvey, but I mm-hmm. I didn't, I don't think I was aware that he was conservative. Like. I didn't listen to him that much. You know, I knew his voice. And, and now you know the rest of the, the story. The rest of the story. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's his whole thing. The rest of the story. We had a, I had a teacher in high school that would always say that. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it was pause and that's the rest of the story. And did you know but at the I time that did, that's what he, the realize. teacher was referring to? Or did you, did you know the backstory, yeah, like the reference all, point? No, yeah, we all knew it was from Paul Harvey. At least I did. My, my dad yeah. liked Paul Harvey, which it should have given me the clue that it was conservative. But I never, you know. I was a kid. I didn't really pay much attention right. to radio or broadcasting, which is funny. Uh, now. I don't think he had a lot of hardline and policy opinions either. Yeah. I don't think he was today's conservative. I think he was like, like storming the Capitol or I anything. think he was just like the uh, white male in the 1950s, like reminiscent. Like he kind of stayed there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he was always in the 50s. Yeah. Like it was real wholesome. Yeah. From what I remember. Do you have much to say about Paul Harvey, Johnny Deutsch? Well, I mean, like again, I think back you? in the day, it was uh, a little easier to be uh, in radio and broadcasting if you're a male. So uh, having yes. a name like Paul Harvey, I think that was kind of more of a shoe in than a woman. But uh, I will say that he did receive the Presidential Medal of Honor uh, about a decade or so ago. So his uh, oh. accomplishments in the, the world of broadcast journalism, uh, you know, that that's that's something. Not everyone has a Presidential Medal of Freedom. Uh, maybe true. one day, maybe we can aim for the stars. Maybe not. That's okay. I, I can die happy. <laughs> well, I think Steve Bannon has one now. Uh, yeah, I think they're Rush pretty Limbaugh. worthless. Yeah. They're pretty so worthless now. They're, now. They're, they're, the value is kind of lower. Well, I have something about Paul Harvey that I wanted to share with you guys. Did you know that his dad was killed by robbers in 1921? No. So that, what a segue from the presidential medal. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Just to yeah, just to bring uh, well, just to bring a little murder for you, aim. I you know, <laughs> well, I appreciate that. You always like it if we can bring murder into it. But according to o- <laughs> odmp.org, which is officer an officer down memorial page, his father was Harry H. Orant. Uh, he died of wounds he sustained when he was shot while off duty, as he was taking police action while off duty. Uh, officer Orant and a detective were rabbit hunting in a rural era area of Tulsa on Federal Road. At about 9 p.m., the officers had returned to their car when they were approached by three armed men who exited a Buick touring car with the intent of robbing them. The detective attempted to fire his shotgun at them, but misfired. The three men started shooting at the officers while they were sitting in their car. Officer Orant, uh, Orant 
despite serious wounds in one lung, leg, and liver, drove one mile to a farmhouse where he collapsed. He died from his wounds two days later, and the detective was paralyzed for life from leg wounds just above the knees. The three suspects were later apprehended. Well, that's good. Two were convicted of murder and sentenced to life. One es- And then one escaped from the Oklahoma State Penitentiary, Penitentiary in 1923 and wasn't captured until 1931 in, wow. in Los Angeles. And he was captured following a spectacular gun battle. So, you know... That's, that's one. That's a rabbit hole. That's one way to make Paul Harvey's life a little more interesting is talk about <laughs> his dad who was murdered by robbers, uh, and add a little action to Paul Harvey. Yeah. So if you're ever in a situation where you need, you're talking about Paul Harvey and you want to spice things up a little bit. Now you can. Now you can, everyone. Thanks to American Timelines <laughs> by History for Jerks, and that'll bring us to Monday, December fourth, nineteen fifty, when. Clement Attlee. Do you guys know who Clement Attlee is? Tell us, Joe. This is a quiz. He was the prime minister of the UK in 1950. He made an emergency trip to the U.S. to meet with U.S. President Truman after Truman had stated that use of the atomic bomb was under consideration in the Korean War, which I briefly Mm -hmm. mentioned on the last episode that they were thinking about it. So we've made the commitment not to go too deep into the Korean War, Joni, because there's like this could just be a Korean War podcast if we did. So yeah. we kind of want to like bring in context what was happening at the time without going deep into it. But this, I think, was a big deal. Like They were really thinking about it. Um, and so to the point where the prime minister came over to like really talk to him. So he, Atlee and Truman, conferred at the White House for 75 minutes. And then December 5th, 1950, that was a Tuesday, White House Press Secretary Charlie Ross died suddenly. At the age of 65, after concluding a press briefing about President Truman's meeting with the prime minister that I just talked about, mm-hmm. Ross was preparing to record some of his remarks for a television crew when his secretary told him, don't mumble. He replied, you know, I always speak very distinctly. Then he lit a cigarette and a moment later he slumped back in his chair and died. Oh, my God. <laughs> now, Ross had been friends with Truman since the time that both of them were in the third grade in Independence, Missouri. You know yeah. what that is? I uh, Sort of. Amy's from St. Louis, so anytime there's Missouri, I yeah, ask her about it. I'm cursed with that. Well, and, and Ross had gone on to become an editor with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch before becoming Truman's press spokesman. Um, and this will kind of play into, there's a couple of these events that all kind of play into each other. Uh, because the next day was a Wednesday, December 6th, 1950. And Washington Post music critic Paul Hume, uh, he had a review of a singing performance at, at the Constitution Hall, which infuriated the father of the singer, who sent Hume a personal letter that made front-page news a day later because the singer was 26-year-old Margaret Truman, of, of whom Hume wrote, She is flat a good deal of the time, more last night than at any time we've heard her in the past years. There are a few moments during her recital when one can relax and feel confident that she will make her goal which is the end of the song. Miss Truman has not improved in the years we have heard her. The following day, Hume received a note at the post, written on White House stationery and signed HST. It began, I've just read your lousy review of Margaret's concert. It seems to me that you are a frustrated old man who wishes he could have been successful. It continued, Someday I hope to meet you. When that happens, you'll need a new nose, a lot of beefsteak for black eyes, and perhaps a supporter below. What does that mean? 
He's going to hit him in the nuts. Oh, wow. I guess. Yeah. So Harry, that's Harry, President Harry S. Truman mm-hmm. writing a letter of threat to somebody who reviewed his daughter's singing. I miss the good old days where you would use <laughs> food to to nurse your wounds. Yes. You know, when you would use a bag <laughs> of peas for a concussion yeah. or you would use, you know, sticks of meat for your face. I mean, it's yep. like a charcuterie or appetizer <laughs> for <laughs> for the body. I, I, I miss those. Why don't we go back to those days? Or one of those things from America's Next Top Model where they put food, they lay a model out on the table. Well, I'm not. No, 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 Joe. That's a that's a that. totally different conversation. Uh. <laughs> definitely, definitely is. Well, if it makes you feel better and, and not to do too much TMI, but uh, I did use frozen peas when I had my vasectomy. All right. Let's uh, move on. Well, <laughs> so anyway. That's, I mean, you know, on the spectrum of things, I think actually your story, Joe, kind of falls in the middle of uh, using, uh, you know, salami for your eye and laying down on the board. <laughs> So sushi can be put on you. So you know what? I'm actually okay with the vasectomy pee story. That's okay. <laughs> Somewhere in there. Uh, right that, in the middle. Well, you know, Hume didn't feel, he wasn't mad at Harry Truman. He bore no ill will, noting that Truman's friend Charlie Ross had just died the day before. And he commented, I can only say that a man suffering the loss of a close friend and carrying the terrible burden of the present world crisis ought to be indulged in an occasional outburst of temper. Well, that's so awful that, nice of him. Yeah, that's all according to the Washington Post, an article by John Kelly that was published in 2017. And that brings us to oh. something you have on that same day. The same that's day right. that that letter was printed, you have a story, yes. Amy. And I'm going to talk about the murder of John Derrick. Oh, the murder. Are you ready for a murder, Joni? I, I feel like most of these stories have death involved with them. <laughs> yeah, murder right. I'm not the, or just I know, a, always... a natural cause of death by probably smoking too much. A death <laughs> yeah. of, a, of a writer through words of Harry Truman. I mean, that killed him right as he read it morally probably but yeah no i'm ready i'm ready for this he's always blaming me for being so macabre and then here he is every single other story he's got murder in it well i know that you you ladies well i don't know about joni you you ladies ladies should be the next podcast we listen they won't ladies love true crime so much they won't listen to me unless i'm talking about death that's no. not sweet, sweet true. Death. We no. also no? like to listen when you have stories about vasectomies, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot of those. Yes, too many. Yes. Okay, so okay. I got this from an, a really good article um, from Black Perspectives. Uh, it was like an online magazine, okay. and it was by Denise Lynn. Denise Lynn from Black Perspectives. I always just repeat it so I can make sure to put it in my notes later. All right. You don't have to share that much. Well, because I... Give I try to give sources. Yes. Anyway. Okay. okay. So the long history of law enforcement in the United States is littered with the regular abuse, harassment, and too often murder of black Americans. Yes, unfortunately. In the 1950 killing of John Derrick at the hands of New York City police is one such murder that managed to capture the attention of ac- activists in the Civil Rights Congress, or the CRC, and the NAACP, as well as political and sports celebrities like Adam Clayton Powell, Sugar Ray Robinson, and Jackie Robinson. Mm-hmm. John Derrick's case was part of larger campaigns by Cold War civil rights organizers to address police brutality and push to reform at a time when civil rights agitation was often linked to communist agitation. Oh, yeah. Which we talk about. Yeah, we've a been lot. yeah, we've been talking about that a lot over the last episodes how like if you were for civil rights, you were basically labeled a communist and a I mean, of course there were communist sympathizers more so than now, I think. Right. I, yeah, I think that's what clouds it a little bit. Is right. there were people who were Yes. part of this movement and giving secrets to 
you know, Russia, and Russians and things. So it's, so yeah, this, it's a hard, it's a mess. It was a mess. So the CRC or the civil rights Congress, that, okay. they're like, um, they're kind of a communist adjacent group. Okay. And they were led by William Patterson. And he saw that the killing as, as part of a deliberate genocidal effort by American officials to suppress civil rights agitation and contain the black community. Yeah. Which, I mean, I can kind of see <laughs> because it's still going on. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's, it's, it's insane how much hasn't changed. You think we've, this seems like ancient history we're talking about. The same. This could have been happened. written yesterday. Yeah. That's the sad part. So um, little, a, little, a little about John Derrick. He joined the United States Army during World War II when he was 17 years old. Okay. He served in Germany during the war and as part of the occupying forces. He was deployed to Korea when he was wounded and sent back to the United States in August of 1950. So he's a hero. He's a war hero. Yes. On December 6th, he received his honorable discharge at Fort Dix, New Jersey, and traveled to Harlem to Dix. celebrate with fellow veteran Private Oscar Farley and Farley's childhood friend Zach Milne. Okay. I just have to say, huh, Fort Dix. Sorry. Right. I know that's not it's a serious story. But your your was... uh, middle school <laughs> listener out there is, is yeah. cheering you on, Joe. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> so they go That'd out to funny. celebrate. Yes. Okay. They're celebrating. So then after leaving a bar... The three men were stopped on the corner of 8th Avenue and 119th Street by patrolman Louis Palumbo oh and boy. Basil Minakotis around 4, 4 o'clock a.m. on December 7th. Okay, so December 7th, yes. the same day that, that earlier that night, you bet your life, or it was December 7th in the morning, right? So yes. later that night, you bet your life was going to be on NBC with Groucho Marx, where he hosts a quiz show which features a series of competitive questions and a great deal of humorous conversation that same day? Yes. All right. So um, Milne's recollection was that the patrolman ordered the men to put their hands up and shot Derek at the same time. Yeah, of course. Put your hands up, bang. Yep. Palumbo and Minakotis claim that Derek had a gun, the supposed justification for the killing. Both Milne and Farley would insist that they were all unarmed. The CRC noted that at the time... Derek was carrying over $1,200 in dis discharge pay, but only $57 was found on him after the murder. Of course. The CRC would later emphasize that New York's finest were only the only ones that had access to Derek's body, suggesting robbery is the real motive. So they just robbed the guy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, that's terrible. I mean, j I'm just thinking about this happening in 1950 and just thinking... People at this time probably thought, specifically black people, boy, someday if there's cameras around, that'll finally put an end to this. But no, right. now that's all being caught on camera and it's still, it's still everybody gets on. off. Like everybody gets let yeah. go. It's so tragic. Yeah. All right. So Clarence Taylor argues that the American Communist Party's involvement in the campaign to end police brutality was part of its larger effort to push to push back against divisive issues that prevented black and white working class unity, which that still happens too. Yeah, they don't want it's divide and conquer. Mm -hmm. Because of this commitment, Taylor notes that the party and its membership were some of the most active in campaigns to challenge police abuse and push for reform. These efforts should be examined as an extension of the wartime popular front campaigns that emphasized coalition building with progressives. So additionally, 
Communists were at the front of the civil rights campaign throughout the Cold War and managed to articulate an emancipatory emancipatory politics because the party provided a space for some of the most important thinkers in black radical thought at a time when those efforts were under constant attack. They had leading theorists including Claudia Jones and W.E.B. Du Bois, and they they found the party open to radical political change, while other civil rights organizations grew more insular and defensive to protect themselves and their membership from legal percussions. So these other um, organizations wouldn't say what needed to be said because they were worried they were going to get sued. The, the CRC's efforts on the Derrick case demonstrate the party's willingness to push beyond Cold War boundaries and insist that unity was paramount to usher in a revolutionary change needed to emancipate all Americans. In true party fashion, the CRC used the language of unity in its calls for actions on the Derrick case. And they said that a coalition of quote-unquote Negro and white New Yorkers were organized in their efforts against police brutality. William Patterson, who was the, the founder of the CRC, Yeah. He released a statement to the press in which he called for the mayor, police commissioner, and the district attorney to expand an existing investigation into graft in police units to include the daily police attacks on black New Yorkers. Patterson called every police officer an armed threat against black Americans, and he argued that New York was no better than the South in its use of violence to suppress black residents. He argued that New York was leading the nation in police killings, and listed several individuals, including other veterans, killed by law enforcement. He insisted it was not geographically isolated to any area in the country, and that police violence even superseded the Klan in its attacks. That's awful. Yep. The party was also one of the few organizations openly opposed to the Korean War. It believed that the war and the larger anti-communist efforts were part of a campaign to silence radical dissent. This was for good reason, since most of the party leadership would be arrested, indicted, serve time, or be deported during the Cold War. William Patterson would be one of the communists arrested for his activism. The racist motivations inherent in the Korean War did not escape the party's notice. Patterson drew parallels between the war and the treatment of black Americans. He called out the hypocrisy of the so-called police action in Korea that was meant to secure peace there, while officials ignored the regular use of violence against black veterans at home and abroad. The CRC and Patterson described all of these killings as legal lynching. Patterson and the CRC literature emphasized the killing of veterans since the end of World War II to highlight the regular injustice against black Americans while the U.S. claimed to fight for democracy abroad. It's just like a big hypocrisy. Yeah, huge. One case in particular was cited by the CRC and Patterson as further proof of police efforts to control black New Yorkers. In February 1946, a rookie police officer, Joseph Rumaika, shot Alfonso Ferguson and his brother Charles, who had just re-enlisted in the Army Air Force. The bullet that killed Charles ricocheted and wounded Joseph Ferguson. The fourth brother, Richard, was arrested, charged with, with disorderly conduct, found guilty only hours after his arrest, and fined $100. Romica, the cop, was called to a Long Island coffee shop after Charles accused a tea room owner in a business terminal of having a Jim Crow attitude for refusing to serve the men coffee. The officer later admitted that he lined the men up and kicked each one of the men in the groin before shooting. Witnesses claimed none of the men were armed. These veteran killings, along with four others, including Derek's, 
were cited in CRC literature and later the CRC's We Charge Genocide petition as evidence of a systemic effort by American law enforcement to oppress and silence black Americans. And the NAACP was also busy looking into Derek's killing and sent telegrams to the DA, Frank Hogan, and the police commissioner, Frank Murphy, to investigate the two officers involved. The NAACP charged the officers with planting a pistol on Derek's body and stealing his money. A week after the killing, the NAACP reported that it brought witnesses to the district attorney's office that could confirm that Derek was unarmed and may have been carrying upwards of $4,000 that night. Oh. Uh, the CRC continued its own campaign and emphasized in its literature that aside from Farley and Milne, there were other witnesses. At least one woman, Geneva Swaggerty, witnessed the killing from her apartment window. She swore that only three seconds passed between the order to raise his hands and the killing. Yeah. The CRC also circulated a petition that made five demands. The indictment of the officers, financial indemnity to John Derrick's family, the investigation of all cases of police brutality, the removal of mounted police from Harlem, and an end to police brutality against Black and Puerto Rican New Yorkers. On February 17th, 1951... Oh, the same day that Gordy House scored his 100th career NHL goal uh, for the Detroit Red Wings? Yes. In their victory over the Montreal Canadiens, which I don't think ever has... The shit I'm saying sound more fucking dumb. And <laughs> oh yes, the, the day that we all know by heart, Joe. The day that's tattooed yeah. on our minds yeah. and souls. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking about this horrible hell that Black Americans are going through, and I was like, meanwhile, some white guy is scoring a bunch of goals and is happy. Received yeah. a lot of great press, or won a couple of awards, yeah. maybe even a trip to Disneyland. Well, it's just like such a reflection of that's all people give a fuck about. Like yeah. nobody's paying attention to these people. Yeah, yeah, and and. It, just that it, I don't know if it's worse or just as bad, but just like these are veterans that have come yeah. back fighting wars for our country that, like you've said, are probably racist wars mm -hmm. um, getting into this. I mean, they want to drop bombs on them because they don't look at them as humans. And then they come back only to be harassed and murdered. Yeah. Just by who the people are supposed to protect you. It's just. Well, and then uh, and it's still so happening on February 17th. <laughs> let me finish this. Sorry. February 17th, 1951. After hearing over 45 witnesses, a grand jury decided there was no basis to indict the police officers. The officer's story that Derek did not comply with the order to raise his hands and instead went for a revolver in his pocket was accepted by the grand jury's members. And with so many cases of police brutality, there would be no justice for John Derek. John Derrick's murder at the hands of police likely does not surprise contemporary Americans. And this is um, a quote. Police brutality of black Americans is regularly featured in the news, as is the failure of prosecutors to indict and convict police officers who kill. The Plainview Project, a research organization devoted to exposing racist comments and memes in police officers' social media sites, has prompted several police organizations to investigate their own officers. What they found was that many officers regularly posted racist or inflammatory images and comments. Social media has been instrumental in spreading awareness about police brutality to white Americans, but has thus far failed to create any substantive and meaningful reform. John Derrick's murder and the CRC campaign are just one part of a long and continued history of police brutality against the black community. And as William Patterson would argue, evidence of the willful effort to employ law enforcement to control and terrorize black people. Perhaps the lesson to draw from John Derrick's murder and the CRC's efforts 
is that police killings are not an aberration, but a concerted effort to keep black Americans silent. Yeah, it's sad and terrible that how far, but that's the thing It's that's how long I mean, this has been going on forever. Right. And if we don't talk, thanks for sharing that. And it's not, I mean, cause you normally, I know like to do gory, scary murders and things like that. But I think it's important. That sometimes we talk about the history of this is it's embedded in our history. And I think there's a lot of people that just turn a blind eye or, of course they or do. want to pretend it's, Oh, it's an anomaly. It's one bad apple. It's, it's I had an argument with somebody forever. on Facebook, which I know I should never do. Yeah, but I had an army an argument with somebody on Facebook who was saying that um, there's no racism anymore because Barack Obama was the president. Oh, yeah, and because there's rich um, there's rich black people. Oh, he said, what about Oprah? What about um, uh, you know, talking about basketball players and how there are rich. That means there's no racism anymore. Oh. Why are you Why are you friends on Facebook with somebody? I'm not. It was that. in a group and some weirdo. You know, you get the trolls. It was probably a troll. Yeah. Can't get in Facebook groups. It was a teacher's group. Oh, this person was like in a teacher's group. That teacher's teaching people. Yes. Teaching our youth. Yeah, we have a systemic problem that's deeply, deeply embedded in our history. Yeah. And yes. I think if anything, the story shows that history is a circle and it's sometimes mm -hmm. it's a circle that is smaller and you see it play out over and over and over again so very quickly. And other times it's a circle where it takes some time for it to come back to the start. Yes. Um, yeah. So it's it's a it's a, in this case, it's a it's a sad circle and it's a disheartening circle that, you know, I think the last year of what we've seen uh, from 2020 to to this uh, new new year, still in the same pandemic that. Uh, hopefully the dial, the circle, has been broken ever so much to encourage a new one to be created in its place. But yeah. we'll see. That's what, I mean, I think you. We Amy always says you can't stop progress. You can only slow it down. So hopefully right. that's true. And, I mean, there is progress, but it gets so, it's e so easy to just, like, throw up your hands and be like, it's always going to happen. It's nothing I can do. It's never going to happen. It's never going to get better. Well, it better. feels like one step forward, two steps back because yeah. you look around and you see, you know, a bunch of white supremacists storming the Capitol. You know, it's yeah. like for a minute you think, oh, my God, we're, yeah. it's the it, there's goodness and, and justice. And, you know, Georgia wasn't disenfranchised the first time in how, you know, ever probably. Yeah. And then. That next day. Well, they were disenfranchised. It's just, just not as bad. There was enough activism to yeah. counterbalance it. So right. now those people are going to try that much harder to, to disenfranchise more people. So it's just like it's an ongoing battle. Yeah. yeah. And I think, so, uh, you know, again, to the theme of the podcast, it's understanding where we have been in, in history past, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. how that has changed or not changed in the current date. And uh, in understanding those facts and stories and perspectives so that we can use reason to guide us into the next step, into the ne you know, right. next year or decade or century. So it's it all goes back around, but it's all about education and understanding our place in this world and, and what has taken place before us. Yes, definitely. Yep. Well yep. said. Yes. Yep. Thanks, Joni Deutsch, for that. That's good. All right. We're going to jump back in and we're going to yes. get to Joni's thing, too. And I got some other things. Um so now we're on Friday, December 8th, 1950, and uh, President Truman had a private meeting with the British Prime Minister Attlee again, and he told him he would not consider using nuclear weapons in war without consulting the U.K. 
Atley, <coughs> excuse me, Atley asked him to put it in writing, and Truman's response was that if a man's word was no good, it would not be any better in writing. But during a break, Secretary, Secretary of State Dean Acheson and Assistant U.S. Secretary of Defense Robert A. Lovett asked Truman to talk with him privately and then reminded the president of a written agreement that the two nations had made in 1948 canceling Britain's wartime right of veto over Americans' use of the atom bomb. So Truman withdrew the pledge, and records of the meeting were altered to reflect only that Truman had said that it was his desire to keep the prime minister at all times informed of developments. So no more promises, again, that he's going to not use the atom bomb. Mm, okay. Um, so there's just this theme kind of goes throughout the month. And then we're going to jump to, that's going to jump all the way to Tuesday, December 12th, 1950. And I understand Miss Joni Deutsch has a story of something to share with us, a biography, if you will. I do indeed. Uh, history turning into herstory with this one. So yes. on yes. December her 12th, 1950, Paula Ackerman became the first woman in the United States to serve a congregation as a rabbi. So we may oh, have wow. some listeners who may not know, you know, what does it mean to be Jewish? What does it mean to be a rabbi? Why is this kind of a historical moment of sorts? So as your fellow, uh, you know, Jewish representative representing my entire religion, uh, I'm not, I'm kidding. <laughs> but as, as someone who is actually Jewish, I'm going to share a little bit about it. And then you can kind of use that context to fuel what I'm going to share about Rabbi Paula Ackerman. So yeah. Judaism first and oldest monotheistic religion dating back to you know thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago the basic laws and tenets of Judaism boil down to the Torah which are the first five books of the book of the Bible uh, you may know them as the Old Testament if you maybe you're not Jewish sure. um, and just like Christianity there are different uh, denominations different sects different branches of Judaism uh, each of which are distinguished by how the individuals interpret Jewish law so similar to politics or anything else or even you know again other faiths in America, for reference, the largest denomination of Jews identify as reform, which one could say is maybe more left-leaning, if you will, if you want to take mm -hmm. a political stance. It okay. adapts Jewish tradition to modern sensibilities, and that includes a more politically progressive and social ju social justice-leaning stances. Uh, so that's one denomination of Judaism. And again, this will pop up in the story I'm going to share. So take notes because there's going to be a pop quiz. There won't, I promise. <laughs> yes. Um, so that's reform. Uh, on the other side of the Jewish spectrum, you have Orthodox. I mean, when you think oh, of I going to New York City and seeing men wearing, uh, you know, having very curly hair, walking in black garb, that's on the Orthodox side of Judaism. They have a strict observance of an interpretation of Jewish law that includes kosher laws. So they can't eat cheeseburgers because that's meat and dairy mixing. Um, I love cheeseburgers, so I will eat them in their stead. <laughs> uh, and then also respecting the Sabbath. So on Sabbath, they don't drive, they don't work, they can't turn off electricity. So they actually have to have a non-Jewish person do that for them. Um, oh, wow. And in the middle of the spectrum of Judaism, you have conservative Judaism. So, you know, moderate, midpoint, somewhere between Reform and Orthodox. Mm -hmm. So I bring this up because in the early years of Jewish history, the ability to be a rabbi, which rabbi means teacher in Judaism, mm -hmm. uh, the ability to be a rabbi was actually handed down orally from a teacher to a student. There really wasn't any way for anyone to learn or to you know come into the fold. You just have to know someone to become that rabbi. 
And over time, and really only in the last 100, 200 years or so, that is where we've seen rabbis receiving formal ordination from academies, universities, colleges to become rabbis, to have advanced Torah studies. So they become teachers, which again, that's what really a rabbi is, is a teacher. And that's, again, multi-year courses of study examinations. And the first rabbi, for those who may not know, we're going back in history a little bit, Moses, often referred to uh, as the first Jewish rabbi in history. So let's go back to Paula, because we're here for Paula. That's why I'm talking about her and all this Jewish stuff. Paula was seen as the first woman, the first woman in the United States to serve a congregation as a rabbi. Why was that such a big thing? Well, to give you context, although the first rabbi in world history was believed to have been ordained in Germany in 1935, her name was Regina Jones, and sadly, she was murdered in the Holocaust, women rabbis were not regularly ordained until the 1970s. So you had a couple folks, a couple women in the 1970s that were formally ordained. They were given their certificate after years of rabbinical Mm -hmm. study and Torah study. Um, The ordination of a rabbi in the Orthodox faith, for example, 2009. So that was about two decades ago where the first woman in the Orthodox faith could do that. And it's still actually subject uh, of debate whether she really is accepted as a Orthodox rabbi. But women in the Jewish faith in some small ways were not seen as being able to be the leaders in that way. In the home life or in education of students or, or children, absolutely equals. But rabbinical study, not so much. So let's give you context then for Paula and what she did to kind of spearhead to trailblaze for women in yeah. rabbinical studies. So she was born on December 7th, 19, I'm sorry, not even 19, 1893. So Whoa. before the 1900s, 1893, yeah. And she was born into the family of Herskovitz. So she was actually born Paula Herskovitz, raised okay. in Pensacola, Florida, and she dreamed of becoming a doctor. And as you can probably imagine, at the late 1890s, early 1900s, being a woman in a field of science wasn't really seen as becoming for a woman. So her father, who was someone who was raised in a very traditional Orthodox religious home in Romania, Mm -hmm. basically told her, look, there's just no way. You're a woman. Women can't do science things. Just just sit Uh, back down. But, But I will say this for him, her father. He actually kind of left the orthodoxy, the orthodox religion, and moved towards a more moderate form of it in the 1900s when she was born. So even though he said, no, 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 don't be a doctor. That's, 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 a, that's a men's world, a man's world. He did say, look, I know that you're curious, and I know that you're passionate, I know that you're smart, and I do want to cultivate that. I want to help you. I want to support you. So I'm going to provide you a formal Hebrew education which, again, at the time, in the 1900s, that's really only for men. That's really only for yeah. sons. Yeah. So for a daughter right. to receive that alongside you know, teenage boys, that is a little progressive. So mm-hmm. uh, she did receive a formal Jewish Hebrew education uh, when her father hired a local rabbi to tutor his kid. Um, and I want to give some context there, too, because I received a bat mitzvah in the early 2000s. Bat mitzvahs have become, uh, for those who don't know, they're basically the the Jewish confirmation of sorts. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, it's yeah. when a woman or a, a boy, a man come of age in their teens and they're seeing the religious faith. They have a big old party, you know, uh, mazel tov, all that fun stuff. Right. 
The first bat mitzvah actually didn't place in America, didn't take place in America until 1922. So again, when I'm talking about these years and dates and, and why she made such a big deal, formal education for women, the ability for them to be trained, the ability for them to be seen in the Jewish faith as an equal I mean, again, it's it's over the last century that we've seen progress there. Um, so Paula, going back in time, Paula was valedictorian of her high school class in 1911. So she's a smarty, you know. She yeah. she knows yeah. it. She's excited. She wants to do things. She was even offered a scholarship to attend Sophie Newcomb College for women in New Orleans, which basically a side off of Tulane uh, University. But she decides to not pursue that. And so she doesn't go to college, even though she was accepted and offered a scholarship. She instead stays home with her family in Florida, and she becomes a music instructor, and she teaches high school Latin and is also a math teacher. And she also taught Hebrew and Hebrew education at Temple Beth El, her childhood temple, where she would meet the newly hired Rabbi Dr. William Ackerman. And so as you can probably imagine by how I introduced her at the start of this, she, Paula, would become Paula Ackerman after a seven-year courtship with William Ackerman, and they married in 1919. And they soon left Pensacola, Florida, and they thought, you know what, you know, Pensacola is great, love the weather, but we're actually able to get a little bit more money for a rabbinic position, a rabbi position, over just, you know, in Mississippi. So we're going to go over there, the Reform Congregation, and again, Reform a little bit more socially progressive, Reform Congregation yeah. of Temple Beth Israel. No relation to her original congregation of Temple Beth El. It's a lot of temples okay. out there. Yeah. After more than 20 years at this congregation in Mississippi, where they moved to, sadly, Rabbi William Ackerman passes away. Mm. And again, at the time, not a, a ton of rabbis out there. I mean, there were to some degree, but convincing them that, hey, you should move to like middle of Mississippi will pay you a decent amount. It's not as popular an idea. So <laughs> yeah. the congregation- I, think I would be shocked. Oh, just that, I would just be shocked that there is mm-hmm. uh, that uh, a temple in mi- the middle of Mississippi. Mississippi. Yeah. No, no, actually, that's a great point. Um, for reference, there are just a few congregations in the state of West Virginia, which is where I'm from. Yeah. And, uh, and not a huge Jewish population, especially over the years when, uh, you know, sadly, uh, Jewish people are dying out if they're graying out um, and or they're just moving out of the state. So you have a yeah. lot of southern or Appalachian areas where Jews are, are leaving them to go to, you know, other bigger cities. So, yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's a fair point, uh, Joe. It's and again, this was in the early 1900s. So, um, yeah, but. So Mississippi. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm from a small town in Ohio, and I don't think I met a Jewish person until I lived in Chicago. Yeah, like yeah. my whole childhood. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, so, for reference, yeah. I give me one second here. I'm actually going to let my dog in because I feel like actually yeah, he's going to stop barking. Give me one second. That's fine. The Nerd School Podcast. I brought three nerds here to help me be a real true nerd. I, I love Marvel movies. I love superhero movies. Well, nerds nerd like stuff. nothing better than to be able to talk about their nerd shit. Nerd people shit. who are actually interested in the nerd shit. And like I'd walk in the comic book store and I'd see them. They're playing Warhammer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Warhammer. And I'm like sitting there. I will say some male nerds back in the day probably would not have let you walk into the arcade and hang out with them. Looking through the books and like I'm listening to these guys and like they're really into it like their whole life. 
It's this Warhammer game. Yeah. And all like, the so nerds like, that I ever like made fun of or picked on were all just laughing at me getting revenge. And I was just like, <laughs> but right. we didn't need to be around you male nerds to be nerds on our own. If if you're in a good gaming group, they'll welcome new people. They'll like I'm walking out of the comic <laughs> store. Like is someone going to see me saying like, oh, he's one of those guys. Yeah. You know those 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 can't get a girl kind of guys. We are just <laughs> vibing because we all like this thing, right. and it's not broken. The Nerd School Podcast. Oh, I mean, even so, through college, I didn't even know. What is it? My dog went to college. He actually did. He no, got his bachelor's degree. His, his <laughs> barkler's. He, he did. It's actually a citizen uh, canine certificate, which is basically <sighs> a bachelor's for a dog. And if you want specialties or his masters, he could either do therapy licensing or um, emotional oh, support. Wow. Yeah, it's like wow. a whole thing. It's a whole thing. Well, our new puppy definitely needs some training. I was just looking at Meridian, Mississippi. To see where compared to okay, it's like east of Jackson, between that uh, Montgomery. So it's not real far from big cities, but not just too- I'm just shocked that there was a, a Jewish temple in such a rural sounding. I mean, maybe it's not that rural, but um, yeah. So anyway, yeah. And, but again, it's uh, you know. Just like with uh, with life, you say, okay, I'm going to go to a new community. I'm going to check this yeah. out. I'm going to establish yeah. roots there. And and uh, and so that's what they did. So you had Paula and William who moved to Mississippi. And after more than 20 years of that congregation, sadly, Rabbi William, he passes away. Yeah. And Paula had been previously teaching and leading religious services. I mean, she was really part of this congregation, part of this community. She was like the 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 woman that you go to for assistance or guidance or support. Um, and she even led those religious services in some small way when her husband had been previously sick or out of town. So she wasn't unaccustomed to being in a leadership role at that congregation, but she still wasn't totally expecting the temple to ask her, hey, can, can you step up as the new rabbi? But she accepted the invitation as both a divine call to service and as all this information comes from the Jewish women archives, as they quote from what she shared, she saw this as an opportunity to plant a seed for enlarged activity for the Jewish woman. And it did. So from January 1951 through the fall of 1953, Paula Ackerman served as Temple Beth. Temple Beth Israel's spiritual leader, conducting services, wow. performing marriages, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, again, weren't really, you know, a super popular thing, but, you know, she they did those two occasionally. Okay. Um, so in doing so, she achieved the distinction of becoming the first woman to assume religious leadership of a mainstream American Jewish congregation, and even the international press referred to as America's first lady rabbi. So wow. I think cool. one little thing I'll mention here is she did pass away in the 1980s. Uh, before she did, though, she was invited to become the spiritual leader of her hometown congregation in Pensacola, Florida. That was Temple Beth, 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 Temple Beth L. So round circle well, moment sweet. there where she, yeah. she started off her life wanting to learn, wanting to help people. And yeah. she was able to. She was able to progress her her knowledge and become a teacher, not necessarily one of like a medical science, but one within her faith. And she, over the years where she technically was retired, she went around the country sharing the wealth of knowledge and inspiration. And again, since the time she was brought in as a religious leader, uh, we've seen more and more women uh, become rabbinical leaders within the faith. So yeah. yeah. 
Really, really well, heartwarming story there. Not really much murder, one death of sorts, one <laughs> yeah. one small passing. Rest in peace, Sometimes Rabbi it's William. Nice not to have any murder. Yeah, yeah you it's know, nice it's a little break. Have, it's a palate yeah. cleanser. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, and and uh, I'm in this. Just today has been a really uplifting day for women for me. Just like, and then thinking about, I like that you talked about her father, and that even though he said she can't be a doctor, but he still was able to take the time with her and acknowledge that she can do things. And he was progressive for 1922 or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, I have a, I interviewed uh, Tubby Johnston, uh, which I'm going to put that out as kind of a special episode just earlier today. And she was the first uh, female to play little league baseball in 1950. Um, and she, we were, we talked about that her dad uh, went to all of her games and was very supportive and Aww. helped her out. She actually, <laughs> uh, she, they want one of the games, like the teams would get mad. Like other, other yeah. parents would be mad that there's a girl playing yeah. and they'd yell and stuff. And she said at one point they put one of the other teams, put this kid who was definitely not a little leaguer. Like it was like a high school kid oh, no. against her on purpose <laughs> yeah. to throw balls at and try to hit her. And she, she didn't care. She's like, I'm doing. I'll I'll do it. But her dad like ran out there and grabbed her and like kind of saved her from that. But like just talking to her, it's like your dad was. It was great that your dad was so supportive and your mom was supportive in yeah. 1950 to tell you to go out. And the coach was a a, a man and yeah. found out that she was a girl after like three games and yeah. and said, I don't care. Let's keep playing. You know who cares? Yeah, and that they, is good. Yeah, and so like it not to diminish any women's things but it's great that we've had some allies throughout this time that have also Mm -hmm. helped um if we had more it would be sooner and all that but like um i think about some of those people like what were those guys thinking like why weren't they like everybody else like right you know yeah so it's neat i'm glad her dad was although he could have probably been better but like that's heartwarming that people were doing that Mm -hmm. and supportive and and that she could do this in 1950 i mean that was a long time ago yep yep and again those little um, things along the way the fact that she was offered a scholarship to attend a college for women in the early 1900s when there really weren't that many universities or colleges that had that opportunity uh was astounding so you know she was a smart woman and she was headstrong and she wanted to do something with her life and she did you know and just little actions add up over time and uh it's 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 again heartwarming to see that um 1900s weren't the the best century for Jewish people in America or you know, worldwide. No. And when you hear right. little stories of this, you're just reminded of uh, of how important it is to have a community and and to to support one yeah. another and to build each other up. You know. Yep. Definitely. Well, to both of you, on behalf of all men, I apologize <laughs> uh, for everything. Uh, Apology is okay, mildly well, accepted, but we're still waiting <laughs> for action, Joe. <laughs> That's right. I'll keep trying. I will keep trying. How about I try by finishing this episode by going through the rest of December. Okay. Somewhat quickly, and hopefully we'll have some fun stories. Uh, I'll go for that. Thank you, Joni. That was great. Uh, Thank you. you. Yeah, I knew you'd be great, and I appreciate that bit of history. Um, And that same day that Paula Ackerman became the first woman in the U.S. to serve as a rabbi, uh, that was the same day that uh, RCA Laboratories announced an early version of sending printed materials to subscribers electronically. Ooh. What it called the first atomic facsimile. First atomic facsimile. 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 Fac
Oh. So the press release noted that it would give scientists quick access to any scientific information anywhere that telephone lines can reach. The collection of nuclear science information was located at Oak Ridge, Tennessee. RCA reported that the first test of what is now referred to as faxing, a document, was when a scientist at the Y-12 electromagnetic separation plant needed a two-page report from the library and that he had it complete in four and a half minutes. Jeez. <laughs> that was amazing to them yeah. in 1950. To get a fax in four and a half minutes was magic. Well, yeah. But now we look at it, it's like, oh, my God, I four know. and a half minutes. You would have given up like 10, 15 seconds in. You're like, I don't, yeah. I'm not just, You're I'm like, not going to bother. Screw it. Ugh. Where's my email? Gosh. It's ridiculous. Where's my instant notification? Where's my Amazon pot? Where's my anim- Amazon box Package. that I ordered 10 minutes ago. Why is it at my door? Where are the drones yeah. that were promised to me? <laughs> yeah, yes. where are the drones? Uh, and then uh, Wednesday, December 13, 1950, U.S. Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin and one of his strongest critics, newspaper columnist Drew Pearson, not the Dallas Cowboys f- football player, which you guys might not know. No. But those two, he was a newspaper columnist, they got into a fist fight. When the two encountered each other at the Soulgrave Club in Washington, D.C., McCarthy, known for his hunt for communists and sympathizers in the U.S., had made comments in the Senate that he would take the hide off Pearson if they if they met next time they meet. The senator said that Pearson had approached him and said, you get rough and I'll get you, McCarthy. In response, McCarthy said, I smacked him with my open hand and knocked him down on his hips. Pearson's version was that the senator kicked me twice in the groin. As usual, he hit below the belt. He probably is probably what happened. Yeah, you think he hit him in the nuts? Yep. Well, they were both assholes because I looked up Drew Pearson and he was uh, super homophobic. Oh. So, like, you know, just let them kick the shit out of each other, I guess. So. Yeah. Uh, but I guess, I'm not saying it's okay, but I'm sure a lot of people were super homophobic in 1950, mm-hmm. uh, which probably, as we've talked about, probably means he was gay. Yeah. But uh, who knows? Uh, and then Thursday, think of, speaking of inventions... Thursday, December 14th, 1950, inventor Wayne M. Pierce Jr. Do you guys know what he's famous for? No. Well, he applied for a patent for the first snowmaking machine, the snow gun. Mm, the snow gun? Yeah, the snow gun. Based on the discovery by Canadian scientist Ray Ringer that artificial snowflakes could be created by blowing compressed water vapor through freezing air. So, like, for stage effects or for for snow resorts when they're trying to like keep the snow up and running for for skiing yeah Yeah, they 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 did it because in 1948 uh the americans were uh had to go a winter without snow and all the the ski shops like yeah were screwed and couldn't sell anything and everything so Mm. they figured out how to do that to make fake snow i always wondered how they did that i I always thought it was like uh, that's stupid of me i always admit how dumb i am but, you know, they've talked about that in Vermont and stuff where they make mm-hmm. fake snow at these lodges. I always thought it was like like fake snow. Like it's not real snow. Like it's oh, like some it's... kind of chemical or like it's like oh, a... Oh, God. Or, or whatever. Like, I didn't realize that they make it with water. And Asbestos. It's, it's snow. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I thought it was like some kind of weird shit. Like how do you get that stuff off your body? And yeah. what is, <laughs> does, it, does it hurt? Like is it not cold? Like I didn't... I'm not smart. And then uh, December 15th, 1950 was a Friday... And President Truman addressed the nation on radio, because that's where you did that in 1950, right. at, at 10.30 p.m. from the White House, and he announced that he would proclaim a national emergency. Our homes, our nation, all the things we believe, believe in are in great danger, he said. 
This danger has been created by the rulers of the Soviet Union. He added, the future of civilization depends on what we do, on what we do now and in the months ahead. Near the end of his address, after outlining what needed to be done, he told listeners, because of all these things I've been talking about with you, I will issue a proclamation tomorrow morning declaring that a national emergency exists. Basically, it was just so they could spend a ton of money without getting any Congress mm-hmm. approval on defense and bombs and everything else. Yeah. Because they're really, they were really fixing to move on, on bomb making uh, and bomb dropping bombs in Korea. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So, and then he, he, the next day he enacted the national emergencies act, which did just that mm. allowed him to not have to ask for money from Congress and, uh, so it's terrible, terrible time. Monday, December 18th, 1950, President Truman ordered the establishment of the Nevada Proving Ground so that nuclear weapons testing could be performed within the continental United States. Mm-hmm. And the American stockpile of atomic bombs and hydrogen bombs could be rapidly increased during the national emergency, clearly getting ready to just stock up on bombs. Yes. Um, there, Yeah, there's a bunch of locations in Nevada for testing. They started testing in areas that were outside of Las Vegas, 65 miles from Vegas. They started mm-hmm. testing these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that same day. Amy, Amy hates birthdays. Amy hates birthdays. That's right. Amy hates birthdays. It's <laughs> December 18th, 1950. Leonard Moulton was born. American film critic and historian in New York City. Oh my God! Okay, you love that Leonard Moulton, don't you? I I don't have an opinion. You don't have Leonard an opinion Moulton. of Leonard Moulton? No, I don't. So we used to have his book in college. We had the big Leonard Moulton book of movies. Like he reviewed every single movie. Yeah, like any movie you could find. And we would play movie roulette, and we would like open the Leonard Moulton book and just land on a a movie, God. and then and then we would look at somebody like this. This movie describes your life, and whatever movie it was, we'd read the description. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, that's not how I, I thought that game would end. I, I think that you'd watch the movie. That's that, what I thought. No, no. That's what I thought you were doing. Yeah. Nope. Nope. We just described that movie as your life. Uh, like, this is the movie about you. Amy, I think we should it. play the, that game our way and, and yeah. see what the results are. Just go are. watch the movie. Yeah. 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 It's a little more fruitful that way. <laughs> it is a great book. Like, I mean, you if you just flip through that book, there's so many movies. And Leonard Martin's seen them all. Anyway, on? yeah, we can move on. Uh, Tuesday, unless Joni wants to go on about Leonard Moulton a little bit. I, you know, I think Amy has a good idea. Yeah. I believe Leonard Moulton might be Jewish. All right. And you know how I feel about all my fellow Jews. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she loves every single one. Loves person. every single one of you. And then Tuesday, December 15, 1950, uh, General Dwight D. Eisenhower retired from the U.S. Army, who would be the next, he's going to be the next president. Mm-hmm. But he retired from the U.S. Army, but he was brought back into service by President Truman to serve as the first Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, uh, the SACUR. Okay. Do you guys, you guys know what that is? No. SACUR? Is that French for heart? No. No, I don't think so. No, it's but... not. It's not. I did. My, my French teacher is probably rolling over in his non-grave. He's still alive. Secure. So this is a position that still exists. I didn't know. This is what they call the leader of NATO, is the, is the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe. Uh, and they lead NATO. Um, and so they still have those guys today. So um, I just 
I didn't know that was a mm-hmm. position that existed and was a now thing. Now, you're welcome so. to cut a couple stories out. I just want you to know yeah, that. Is that boring? Is that boring? I was just blown away by that. <laughs> um, okay, well, I'll, may, I was going to skip this one, but Congress approved uh, the Federal Civil Defense Act where they provided $3 billion of funding for fallout shelters throughout the mm-hmm. U.S. because we're going into this atomic yeah, war. Yeah, the Cold like, War. I think they That's really fun. just thought. It's going to be nuclear war from now on. Is right. that like the Cold War equivalent of us receiving stimulus checks? <laughs> I guess yeah, not probably. Except you get a fallout shelter, Joni, that's all. Uh, which, yeah, that's creepy just to think that that's what they thought. Um, December 21st, 1950, General MacArthur ordered the censorship of all news reports considering concerning the Korean War. Uh with his office to provide official clearance before news reports, magazine articles, photographs, and films or broadcasts could be released to the world. Um, and they actually, United Press reporter Peter Webb was one of the first to be punished. After failing to clear a report about the death of General Walker with MacArthur's headquarters, he was detained for 18 hours before being released. So they're getting really uh, authoritarian here. Mm-hmm. Like building bombs, like starting defense things, building fallout shelters, censoring the press. Yeah. Uh, And that same day, for the first time, the U.S. Civil Aeronautics Board approved licensing for a flying car, giving it certificate approval for the Airphibian, invented by Robert E. Fulton Jr. Like all other automobile airplanes that had sought a blessing from the cab, the Airphibian had detachable wings. Huh. Fulton flew into Washington's National Airport, removed the wings, then drove to the office of the Civil Aeronautics Administration, where he accepted the certification from Administrator Donald W. Nyrop. Mm. So I didn't... Weird they had a flying car in 1950. Yeah, and so I think that's why they assumed by the 2000s that's all there would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they had one Yeah. in 1950. I can't believe it. And that same day also, one of the... Most well-known articles of clothing in comic strips history was introduced when Charlie Brown was first seen wearing his zigzag t-shirt. Cartoonist Charles M. Schultz had added the distinction in order to set Charlie Brown apart from the rest of the characters. Because they all kind of looked like Charlie Brown at the beginning. They're all just bald kids. Solid clothes, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And then we're going to jump all the way to Christmas Eve. Summer 24th, 1950, in their first year in the National Football League after four seasons as champions of the defunct All-America Football Conference, the Cleveland Browns won the 1950 NFL Championship game 30-28 to over the Los Angeles Rams with a field goal in the final minute of the game. That's like the last time they won, right? Yeah, they, yeah they've been terrible for a while. Ooh, that hurt. Yeah. So, that hurt. And I, yeah. I have no stake in this, yeah. and that still hurt me. Yeah, so, yeah, Amy knows I have family and friends and people from, you know, we're from Toledo, Ohio. So a lot of Browns fans, and it's pathetic. Browns fans are pathetic. Browns fans and Lions fans are where I'm from that area, and they're always, both teams are always terrible. Yep. Uh, I think they're actually the only two teams that have been 0-16. Oh, my God. So, from my area, yeah. So, sorry, Browns fans. It can only go up from here, though. It can only go up from here. The Browns actually made the playoffs this year, and it was big a big deal on face, Facebook in my world. Um, and then, yep, okay, so uh, this same day, I'll try to make this quick, according to sources within the, British, within the British Foreign Office. This didn't come out until, I think, the 2000s or something. Um, General MacArthur 
had followed up on his December 9th request to use the atomic bomb he had requested, and he actually had specific targets that he wanted to target with the atomic bomb. Like that's how close they were to blowing up Korea, Korea. that they Ugh. actually had the wow. targets. Um, and then, okay, one more birthday really quick. I'm going to just throw this one in here. On December 25th, Christmas Day, 1950. Amy, Amy hates birthdays. Amy hates birthdays. Ed Hockley was born. American NFL referee and trial lawyer was born in Milwaukee. Ed Hockley. All right. Don't you love Ed Hockley? No. Our friend Jessica, Ed Hockley is the referee. I know you, you're not a big football fan, Joni, either. But what? Some of our are you maybe I you love are. are the you footballs. He loves the football. Ed Hockley's the referee known. He's like got big giant guns. He's an old guy, and he would over-explain everything. But he's a big muscly guy. But we had a friend named Jessica who was on the podcast. This she was yeah. actually our first guest this season. Uh, she made a T-shirt that said, "What would Ed Hockley do?" And it actually kind of took off for a little while online, and people would buy it. Just yep. uh, wow, because er- everybody knows Ed Hockley. He was born on December twentieth, nineteen fifty. Happy birthday, Ed Hockley. He's a Christmas baby. He might be a Jesus. All right. Let's okay. move on. And then <laughs> December 26, 1950 was a Tuesday. The comedy drama film Born Yesterday, starring Judy Holliday. Oh, yeah. In an Oscar-winning performance, William Holden and Broderick Crawford was released that day. Yes. And that's that movie was playing when my mom, who is going to be a guest uh, on her birthday month in a couple oh. of weeks. She was born in February 1951. She tells me oh, her, she's gotta be on the- her mom was at that movie when she went into labor Aww. with my mom. Oh, wow. And and Amy, and the, you know, to tie that back together, Amy starred in Born Yesterday That's at right. the Summerstock Theater where we met. And you were in it. I was the, in it. The shoeshine boy. <laughs> yeah. Amy was the, fem- the female lead. <laughs> Who can forget lead. the most important role of the shoeshine <laughs> yeah. boy? Yeah. yeah. She was the female lead, and I was the shoeshine boy with developmental disabilities. That's uh, right. So, well, yeah. you, you decided he had developmental well, disabilities. I, you know, I don't care if I didn't have any lines. I was going to add traits to my character. Of course. And I course. had traits. And he was a guy that was obsessed with feet. And that's why he was shoeshining people. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh yeah, anyway, that's, yeah, so that's a small little thing we did where we met in that summer stock theater, and you fell for the class clown. Yeah, I know. Even though you were the ingenue, so, anyway. She still for, is the ingenue, the kick-ass ingenue. She still is. She's the kick-ass Thank ingenue. You. Yeah. Thank you very much. Women's history. Okay, and then Saturday, December 30th, we're, we're getting to the end here, uh, 1950, after a successful run on Los Angeles station KECA-TV, Space Troop. Space Patrol made its national television debut on the ABC Television Network. The setting of a half-hour-long science fiction adventure series was 1,000 years in the future in the year 2950. They're, they were so obsessed with the future oh, in were. the 50s. With Commander Buzz Corey mm-hmm. and a sidekick cadet Happy. From the wild, vast reaches of interplanetary space, those famous bright-sized serials... Wheat Checks and Rice Checks bring you Space Patrol! It wasn't enough for just Wheat Checks to <laughs> sponsor this show. They got to they gotta double the checks to make That's Space right. Patrol possible. Wow. That's right. 
Yes. I just, I love advertising. Like, I'm fascinated by old ads. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Old advertising and old TV. Like, we love the cigarette ads. We had a couple episodes ago, we played a. Did the Flintstones a, a, cigarette ad? Well, and a Lucky Strike. There was a Lucky Strike oh, ad right. with a, a they cartoon. Were all cartoons. And talking about the delicious flavor, or the toasted Lucky Strike flavor. And I got to say, it did make me want to have a cigarette. Yeah, it sure did. Which like, is oh, why so they've banned that kind of ad <laughs> in yeah. 2020. Yep. Yeah, which makes sense. Uh, but that concludes Space Patrol is going to conclude our our whole our year, ep- our of, year 1950. of 1950. Not only just this episode, but the year, uh, except for my little special one that I'm going to do with uh, Tubby Johnson. Um, but thank you for concluding 1950 with us, Joni Deutsch. thank you for being here. Joni Deutsch is a big deal. I can't tell you all how lucky we are to have Joni Deutsch on American Timelines. Please listen to Amplifier, or She Says was an unbelievable podcast uh, that won lots of awards, and that's still available. Um, What other podcasts of yours can we listen to? I mean, FAQ City, if you're in Charlotte, FAQ City, you have to listen to. It's great. I mean, there's... Nick Delacanel. Sorry, I just got to say. There are just so many different podcasts that we produce uh, in-house of the WFAE, which is the Charlotte NPR affiliate. So I would just say if you just go to WFAE.org, you'll find the full list. But yeah, if you're into Southern interviews, uh, Terry Gross with a Southern drawl, if you will, I would highly recommend Southbound to Tommy Tomlinson. Uh, We also have the Work It podcast, which were, uh, they're the winners of our big old competition we did, the Queen City PodQuest in 2019. We released their podcast last year. Uh, we got a wide variety of them, not to mention Charlotte Talks, which is a daily program yeah. With documenting Collins. all of the things happening and impacting the Charlotte region. So uh, if you're looking for audio, news, stories, music, or otherwise, WFAE.org will get be your place to be. And stay awesome. tuned for the next Charlotte Pod Festival, Podcast Festival. Uh, uh, is that what we call it? The Charlotte Podcast? No, I'm honored that is, I'm in fact, what we called it, Joe. Yes, as someone who was on the planning <laughs> committee, you were doing a great yeah, job on the memory such recall. Such an idiot. You're trying yeah. to plug something you don't I'm even know what it's called. Yeah. It is indeed uh, called the yep. Festival of Podcast Charlotte. Yes. <laughs> Check out Charlotte Podcast Festival. I think online you can find the some of the sessions are on CharlottePodcastFestival.com, Joe. Yes, that is correct. Yes. CharlottePodcastFestival.com. And the next one, it we had 14,000 uh subscribers to that or uh what do you call them registrants from all over the world we had people from poland and that's germany cool. and everywhere so it's not just a charlotte thing we offered content yes it was charlotte based and most of the speakers were from charlotte but the expertise was worldwide and everybody loved it so and we created Sweet. this little community on facebook too that's very active and very excited and very welcoming so check out the charlottepodcastfestival.com sign up and join us next year. All right. It's right? time to get out of here, Chuck Berry. Yeah, it's time to get out of here. Let Dale through. Thank you, Joni Deutsch, for being here. Thank you all. And I'm excited to see what 1951 will bring to the world. I have no idea. Right. I was not alive at that time. But that's why Neither you have a podcast like American Timelines. You can learn yes. about it. Have fun history. Joni Deutsch!
as a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. I'm going to go start dinner. Yeah, right. <laughs> Is that how you end the podcast? Yeah. That's how we do it. I'm going to yeah. go start dinner now. Make me some cookies, bitch. <laughs>